you know, and I thought maybe when I get back, my friends and family are going to be disappointed. They're going to say, oh, gee, you didn't make it, you know, but I didn't get that reaction at all. Everybody, virtually everybody said to me that they were proud of me for having the ability to be 900 feet from the top and make the right decision to come back down. Hello, and welcome to the Decision Education Podcast, where we talk to experts and share tips on all things related to decision-making. I'm your season two guest host, Annie Duke, broadcasting from the Alliance for Decision Education, the educational nonprofit committed to the understanding that better decisions lead to better lives and a better society. In this season, we're turning our attention to decision-making in the world of high-performance sports. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll start to think differently about the critical role of decision-making in the competitive sports we follow so passionately, as well as discover practical ways to improve your own decision-making. Imagine what a difference it would make in your life and the lives of those you love if we were all even a little bit better at making decisions. The Alliance is building a national movement to bring decision education to every student in this country. But this podcast is for you, the adults who are already out in the world making thousands of decisions every day and who want to get better at it. Producer's note, this episode contains personal accounts of climbers' deaths during mountain expeditions, which some listeners may find upsetting. I'm so excited to welcome my guest today, Ken Kamler. Ken is a microsurgeon who practices extreme medicine in the most remote regions on Earth. He has been the doctor on six Everest expeditions, four with National Geographic and two with NASA. And he was the only doctor near the peak during the epic 1996 Mount Everest disaster, since made famous by the book and documentary Into Thin Air. Ken's also been a physician on both a Kilimanjaro research expedition with the U.S. Army and on an expedition to use unmanned submersibles to recover an Apollo 11 rocket engine from 14,000 feet beneath the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. He has given TED Talks on his many adventures, has been profiled in the New York Times, and has been a guest on the Oprah Winfrey Show for the whole hour. Ken is the author of two survival books, Doctor on Everest and Surviving the Extremes, and is the recipient of the 2009 Lowell Thomas Distinguished Explorer Award and the Explorers Club Award for Heroism and Altruism on Everest. Ken, I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks for that great introduction. So can you just start off by, I mean, obviously, this is like the most amazing bio. Can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do and ha- how you got, I mean, to Everest, I guess, I mean, but to, to these extreme locations and these extreme sports? Yeah, yeah. Ever since I was I was a kid, I was like, Outdoors. I've always enjoyed being outdoors. I grew up in the Bronx in New York in a housing project, which is pretty much the opposite of being in the great outdoors. And I was a precocious reader. I started reading even before I went to school. I like to say my first climb was up my father's bookshelf, (laughs) where I took down this book called Annapurna. And the book that I had picked up was actually a classic story of the first summit of Annapurna, which at that time was the highest mountain in the world ever climbed, ever oh. since I've been climbed. It was a fascinating book to me. It, it opened up a whole world of outdoor adventure and huge open spaces in the Himalayas, just quite the opposite of where I was growing up. And I always had this in the back of my mind that someday maybe I could, you know, see what that part of the world looked like. But growing up in the Bronx, no one ever talked about mountain climbing. In fact, if you did, people looked at you funny. So I became a doctor, but I never lost that desire to explore those big open places I had read about in Annapurna. When I was a resident, I was already a resident in a a New York hospital, and we got a patient in who had taken a bad fall in New Hampshire, a climber, and needed several operations. Wait, what what mountain? Because I grew up in New Hampshire. Oh, it it was in the the White Mountains. (laughs) Yes. Uh, He took a bad fall there, and we were a specialty hospital, so he came to us for treatment. And I got to know him and I told him I always had this idea of climbing. He's, he gave me a phone number and a name and he said, if you ever want to go climbing, here's a guy who can teach you how to do it. So I went up to New Hampshire to learn how to climb. And the day I got there, I found out that the day before, this guy who was going to teach me how to climb had taken a fall himself and broken his ankle. So I thought, well, that's the end of that, you know, but 
He said, you know what? My roommate is an ex-Green Beret who specialized in mountain warfare. I said to myself, what am I going to have in common with an ex-Green Beret from North Dakota? You know, I'm a kid who grew up in the Bronx. But in fact, he hit it off very well. And he taught me how to climb. I loved it. And then about three or four months later, he called me up and he said, you know, I'm planning to go to Peru with a group of climbers. And would you like to come along? And it was like the opportunity of a lifetime to go to Peru and climb. So I immediately said yes, but I also realized that uh, I was not nearly at the level of his climbing skill or the other people in the group. And I was being brought along because I was a doctor. You know, that, ah, yeah. they wanted to have a doctor on the, on the team. And I became the guy to go to if you need a doctor for an expedition. So you've been on Everest six times, but there's a really interesting thing that people wouldn't assume about you having been on Everest six times. So I guess I'll just ask you, what is the summit like on Everest? Well, I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't been there. I've been within 900 feet, but I, I haven't summited. And in 95, I was within uh, 900 feet of the summit. My group was, I was with nine other climbers. Everest in those days was very different than it is now. It's become a carnival. But when we were there in 95, there was nobody else up there trying for the summit. We were the only team. There was nine of us. And we were making good progress at the beginning, but there was a lot of snow already falling. It wasn't snowing that day, but snow had been falling a few days before then. And the snow had really accumulated. And it was like a crystalline kind of snow that was not leaving any footprints. It was, it was too fluid. It was, it was like walking in a sugar bowl. You put your foot down and the snow would coalesce around you. When you lifted your foot up, it would, it would fill in the space again. So there were nine of us, and it was as if each one of us was breaking trail. You know, normally when you have a group climbing like, climbing like that, you climb in a line, and uh, the first guy is breaking trail, which is exhausting. And then after a while, he drops to the back, and somebody else breaks trail. And you, you take turns because it's exhausting work. But in this case, we were all breaking trail because no trail was holding. So we were making very slow progress and getting pretty tired. And we were up on what's called the Southeast Ridge, which is the last 1,500 feet to the summit of Everest. And there's a drop-off. When you're on this narrow ridge, there's a drop-off. If you fall to your left, you fall 8,000 feet into Nepal. If you fall to your right, you fall 12,000 feet into Tibet. And it's a narrow, sinuous kind of a line that you're following. Clouds are passing through you. And when a cloud passes through you, you can't even see your feet or anything. So you got to stop. So progress is very slow and dangerous. It's, it's very dangerous. So we're moving very slow, very cautiously. And even though the day itself was good and we were feeling okay, our progress was too slow. And we realized that we could make the summit, but if we did, we'd have to come back down probably in the dark and certainly out of oxygen. So we stopped to, to sort of talk this over and even talking it over is difficult because you're on a thin line. We had three radios. You can't gather in a group. It's, right. it's far too narrow. So we gathered in little groups of three because we had three radios. And even though we were 900 feet from the top, we realized that it would be too risky to continue. And all nine of us decided to turn around, even though we could have summited. And it's a very tough decision to make at that point, because you've been planning this expedition for a year. You've been on the mountain for almost three months now, and you're putting everything into this, into getting to the summit of Everest, and you're only 900 feet away. And you could make it, you could make the summit, but you have to stop and think what's more important. You know, what's ahead of you at the summit or what you have behind you waiting for you back home, your family and everything else, your friends. And it's hard to remember that when you're 900 feet from the top and it's so tempting to go for the summit. Plus, you know, you don't have as much oxygen as you want. It's hard to think clearly. But I made the decision, and so did the others, that we were not going to go for the summit. It's very hard to turn around when you're 900 feet from the top. Obviously, as you tell it, it seems very obvious. Yeah. You know, you're, you're on this very narrow ridge. You're, you may be 900 feet, but because of the conditions, it's going to be such slow going. But by the time you come down, 
you won't have oxygen and it will be dark. And I assume that dark is is a particular problem trying to navigate a ridge where you're going to fall 8,000 feet into, <laughs> into Tibet absolutely. and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and absolutely whatever it was, 12,000 feet into Nepal, and they have yeah. that reverse. Yeah. So, so, you know, and my, my understanding about Everest in general is that most of the dangers are not on the ascent, they're on the descent for, for just those reasons. So, you know, we're hearing you tell the story and from the outside looking in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's like, well, obviously you, you should just quit and turn around. Yeah. But what we know is that people who are much more experienced than, say, somebody like me looking from the outside in, who are used to making these type of decisions much more than I am. Are actually are quite bad at that particular decision, should you continue on or not under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you touched on it a little bit, but, you know, one of the things there's, there's this great work by Maurice Schweitzer, who's at, at Wharton, and he talks about the downside of goals in particular. He really talks about goals as creating a myopia mm-hmm. where you're necessarily privileging certain values that you have. Yeah. Over others or certain goals that you have over others, like the goal to have a happy life with your family or be comfortable or those kinds of things. When you're when you're climbing up Everest, obviously, those other goals, you know, I want to have a very long and fruitful career as a doctor. They get deprivileged compared to the goal of making the summit. And I, I heard you touch on that a little bit as you were talking about, but I'd love to sort of hear because I imagine that you've experienced that maybe that kind of forgetting or that that shadowing of of other things that are important to you when you're on that mountain? This is how I like to look at, at any goal that I think I might want to take on. And I think it keeps me balanced as to what's important and what isn't. And what I do is I always ask myself this question about anything I'm thinking about doing. If you can't tell anyone about this and no one is ever going to find out that you did it, would you still do it? Mm. I think that's a very important question people should always ask themselves, because if you know no one's ever going to find out you did this, but you want to do it anyway, then it's a real goal. Then it's something you're doing for yourself that you deeply believe in and, and you know feel that's important to sacrifice for or whatever. But most people's goals, I think, they're looking a lot toward reflected glory, toward what it looks like for them, how other people will think about them. And I think a lot of our motivation is this reflected glory. You want to you want people to think something good about you, which is why you do these things, rather than thinking good about yourself. So, like that 900 feet that we're talking about, the reason why I wanted to climb Everest, I thought about it quite a bit because it's a huge sacrifice in terms of time and and everything else. It sort of takes you away from the rest of the world for at least a year. And I said to myself, if I can never tell anybody that I climbed Everest. And no one is ever going to find out that I climbed Everest. Do I still want to do this? And I thought about that a lot. And the answer for me is yes. Yes, I still want to do this because I really am doing it for myself. I want mm-hmm. to see if I can meet that kind of a challenge. If I can me- mentally and physically, you know, if I have that, if I have what it takes to do it. And then when I came within 900 feet of the summit, at a time when nobody else was summiting at all, there were no, no summits, to be 900 feet from the summit on a, on a 29,000 foot mountain, I felt like I did it. I felt like I was up to the to task. I was up to it mentally and physically. And for me, it was as good as if I had summited. I didn't need that last 900 feet to prove it to myself. So I was happy with that. I was, I was okay. You know, and I thought maybe when I get back, my friends and family are going to be disappointed. They're going to say, oh, gee, you didn't make it, you know, but I didn't get that reaction at all. Everybody, virtually everybody said to me that they were proud of me for having the ability to be 900 feet from the top and make the right decision to come back down, that I still had enough sense to weigh that decision, you know, and come to come to the proper conclusion. You know, I think that's so interesting. There's a couple of really interesting things in there. I think that we, when we're thinking about ourselves, you know, there's this really interesting work done that that people who get the bronze medal in the Olympics are much happier than people who get the silver. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It it is true. Uh huh. And you can imagine why, right? Like for the silver, 
the counterfactual is, oh, I almost got gold, right? Like right. I didn't quite get there. Right. Whereas for the bronze, it's, oh, I could have gotten fourth place. I'm so happy yeah, I got a medal. That's right. Yeah. So it, it kind of depends on like, you know, what that counterfactual is. Like, does something mm -hmm. happen where the weather's really bad, where you're halfway up Everest? I think that in some ways that feels better for, for people cognitively than, you know, being within 900 or 300 feet, sort of like, oh, I don't want to quit on the 25th mile of a marathon. I would have right. preferred never to have started. And right. the, because we process it that way, I think there's something that we really get wrong, which you you said so clearly, which is we imagine the disappointment of other people. I think because in that moment, we're feeling the disappointment for ourselves that we then right. imagine other people will feel for us as well. But of course, that's an inside view problem, right? We're seeing that from inside of our own perspective. Right. Where if you get outside of your own perspective and you imagined somebody coming back from that situation and saying, I was climbing in a sugar bowl and I realized I was going to fall 8,000 feet into Tibet Nepal. if I, Nepal, <laughs> right? Yes. I would fall 8,000 feet into Nepal if I continued. Everybody would not only say that's amazing, but I think they would recognize for themselves how difficult that decision would be when you were yeah. so close. Because this idea of being so close, it's like it's so much better to have not tried at all. Yeah. You know, as far as yeah. the decision, right, then 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 to be so close. Yeah. So the fact that you were able to overcome that is so incredible. And then obviously get that reinforcement when you went back home mm -hmm. to find out that yes, people really did recognize what amazing an amazing decision that was. So you said something I think so interesting to me before that fits into this idea of goals. Like right, what are our goals and how how when we set a goal like setting uh, you know, summiting Everest or finishing the marathon or getting the project done or you know, whatever it is, we all have all of these goals. Mm -hmm. How are those goals actually in some ways creating sort of perverted decision-making, right? So so one of them is is what we just talked about, that we sort of forget that we have other things, like wanting to live a, a long and happy life and we'll make bad decisions about continuing. But, you know, when we talked before, you said something so interesting about people get the goal for Everest wrong because they think the goal is to get to the summit. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to kind of talk about what what's the actual goal when you're going up Everest? Yeah, well, the actual goal is to get back down alive. That, that's when you get to the top of Everest, you're only halfway there. It doesn't count if you don't come back down. It really doesn't. So people forget about that, which is like what you said. There's There are eight times as many fatalities going down as there are going up because people get to the summit and they think, that's the goal. And then they sort of lose their focus. They're either elated that they made the summit or they're disappointed that they didn't and they're exhausted and they come back down having lost the idea that the, the, the real goal is to get back down alive. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like in general, people very often get the time horizons of their goals wrong. Right. And it, it's like, I can continue to run this marathon, but I may injure myself so badly that I'll never run another one. Right. Right. And yeah. so if you if you can imagine, well, okay, it's fine for me to quit this one time because it's going to allow me to run more. Mm -hmm. You know, and the, the same thing obviously happens with, you know, if you're starting a business and it's failing, you know, get out quickly so that you have time to go do something else that's going to be more profitable. But I, I feel like we sort of lose sight of that or when we're in a job that we hate and we think, you know, we think that if we quit, you know, it'll be some sort of declaration of failure that you couldn't make yeah. it work. You're taking yeah. away the ability to go do other things that are going to be so amazing. So I think this sort of like getting the goal exactly right. I mean, obviously for most of us, it's not that much of a life and death situation, but you can see what the effect of that is so clearly when you put somebody in a life and death situation who gets the goal wrong. I want to rewind to the day before mm -hmm. you head up into the sugar bowl. You know, as you said, you were the only group that was summiting on that day, which, you know, for, for those of us who, who think about Everest once Everest became really well known, we think about lots and lots of, of groups trying to get up on the same day. So you mentioned that you were the only one, but the day before there was a group that was, was attempting a summit the day before, right? That's right. That was Rob Hall's group, the New Zealand team. Yeah, the New Zealand team. And, and they also couldn't get up. Is that correct? Right. That's correct. They couldn't get up. They encountered the same problem we did. If the snow was too loose. They couldn't get good trails and they couldn't even put in ice screws. It, when you climb like that, you, you put in a screw into the ice. And at some points that are very dangerous, you can tie a rope to that and sort of help yourself along. But 
Because it was like like a sugar bowl, we couldn't even screw anything in. It wouldn't hold. And they had the same problem. So they also thought it was too dangerous and, and they came back down. You sort of passed them yes. on the way. So, right. Yes. Uh, so, yes. okay. So, so now we come to the next year. So that was 1995. And in 1996, now you're going to, you're going to make another summit attempt. At the right. first two times, I, I think, I, as I recall from, from your work, you got sort of caught down at base camp being a doctor. Yeah, that was the problem. You know, I had a higher priority than climbing the mountain. Right. Know? I mean, I suppose I shouldn't call it a, it's having your goals correctly and what makes you happy. Cor- <laughs> yeah. cor- correct. Yeah. So, so yeah. being a doctor yeah. got in the way of the, the two summit attempts. But now in 95, you actually get to try to summit. Right. Mm-hmm. The day before Rob Hall comes down the mountain with his expedition, the, the, the New Zealand expedition that says, ooh, it's really tough up there. They fail. You try to go up, you fail. And now you right. say, okay, I'm coming back for another time. And this is the next year in 96. Yeah. So, yeah. so you're going to go up and tell, tell, me, tell me what happens with that summit attempt. Yeah. Okay. First, let me say, you know, I was, I was content with 95. You know, oh, I yes, could have stopped, yes. stopped there. But, you know, when, you, when National Geographic makes you an offer to go back to Everest, and you realize that you you know you have a chance to be the doctor again on another Everest expedition. It's alluring, you know. And I, I wanted to go. I wanted to be part of part of the team. But there are people filming that year, right? Yeah, in '96 there was or the, there was another team, couple uh, other teams on the mountain. Rob Hall was back again, right? Uh, but he and, now he took an expedition pretty much every year. Is that right? Yes, yes, he took an expedition every year. But that year, Dave Brashears was there with IMAX team to film a movie on Everest, a scripted movie. They had a storyline and they had act, not they had climbers who were going to actually act in roles and do a movie with Everest as the backdrop. So Brashears was there with an IMAX team and some really superb climbers to, to make this movie. And there was also Scott Fisher, who's an American climber, mm-hmm. who brought along his American team, also trying to summit. Scott's team and Rob's team and Dave's, Brashears' team and our team were the were the principal teams on the mountain. There were some other smaller groups from other countries, but we were the main teams. So you're going to head up the mountain. I just want to pause for a moment to talk about a decision tool mm-hmm. that I think is really interesting that people use on Everest, which is called turnaround times. Can yeah. You, can you explain what those are and why you have those? Yeah. This is, it's a built-in safety kind of margin. What you do is you figure out how many hours of daylight you have and what, how many tanks of oxygen you have and you figure out what you need to get back down, how much time you need and how much oxygen you need to get back down. So as you're climbing, you preset points in your mind. If I don't get to this point by this time, no matter how good I'm feeling, I have to turn around mm-hmm. because my safety margin is getting too thin. You know, you check your oxygen and you check your time. And pretty much like you say, if I'm not in the South, at that time, we used to start at midnight. They start even earlier now. You start up the last day when you're your summit day, you start, you start off at midnight. And you say, well, if I don't get to this southeast ridge by daylight, I'm going to turn around because that means I'm too slow. Then you go up to the southeast. The south summit is a distinct point along the way. And say, well, if I don't get to the south summit, say, by six in the morning, I'm going to turn around because I'm moving too slow. So you have these points along the way where you can judge your progress and you pre-think this so that you have enough time left and enough oxygen left to get back down. And generally at that, at least at that time, we used to say, if you're not on the summit at noon, you have to turn around because you need that, you need to have that margin of daylight and that margin of oxygen as a safety factor to get back down. And th- this is meant, you know, I mean, Daniel Kahneman has talked about this, that the worst time to make a decision is when you're actually in it. Oh, yeah. So, so, and I assume that's much more true when you're dealing with a goal that feels very pass fail, right? right? Like, you know, 300 feet of the summit is fail. I mean, not right. for you, 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 right. you have a very different view on this, but I imagine for, for most people that are in that situation, it feels very much like the silver's nothing to me. I'm just going to be sad. I want to get the gold. Yeah, that's right. They want the trophy. Yeah, exactly. So I, I want the pass fail. I, I want to achieve this pass fail goal and make the summit. A lot of it has to do with, you know, another thing that you said, which is, you know, I want to be able to tell people I made the summit because most people probably aren't sitting and saying, is, is this for me or is this for other other people? And you, you're deprived of oxygen and you're, you're deprivileging other goals that you have. In fact, you can't even see them in that moment. And so 
these turnaround times, these these sort of check-in points are, are meant to actually save you from your own bad decision-making in the moment by basically making the decision in advance when you're in a more rational state of mind. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's exactly right. You just have to hold to the decision you made when you were in a position to make a better decision. Okay, so now so now you're 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 heading up that mountain and just as the year before, the New Zealand expedition is going up the day before you, right? Right. Right. So 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 they they now head up the mountain along with this American expedition, right? Right, Scott Fisher's team, right? Yeah, and a couple, I think there maybe were a couple others. And yeah, there was, Makalu Gao was a, a, a Chinese climber who was up there with them. So th- so they now go up the day before you and, and c- just tell us tell us kind of what happens on that day. Well, yeah, they were, they were going for the summit. We were 2,000 feet below them in Camp 3. We were 24,000 feet at that time, planning to go up the next day. And they were moving up, moving up slowly. And they were on the Southeast Ridge, most of them. And what we just talked about with turn, turnaround times, they didn't really hit their turnaround times. They should have, they should have turned around, but they, they were moving too slowly, but they kept on going anyway, for the most part. You know, your turnaround time has a built-in safety margin. Right. And you can still get back down, you know, if you're willing to thin out your safety margin and, you know, take a risk that you won't need that safety margin. You can, you can add some time to your turnaround time. You know, you can say, well, you know, if things go well, I can actually squeeze out an extra hour here. So that was what they were doing. They were going up, cutting their turnaround time too short. And we were listening on the radio at 2,000 feet below, and we heard their progress as they went along. And Rob's team had a radio, Scott's team didn't have a radio, but we could follow the progress of Rob's team. And Rob finally did get to the summit, but it was already two o'clock in the afternoon when he summited, which is too late. You know, he should have been up there by noon or, or turned around. And some of his team was still not up there. And we had heard that three people had summited. And as far as Scott Fisher's team goes, we didn't know what was going on with them. They apparently hadn't summited, but they didn't have radio. So we didn't know where they were. And just around that time, the weather really turned. It became really cold and nasty, and it was pretty clear a storm was coming in out of nowhere. No, no one expected the storm. Vicious storm just sort of hit the mountain out of nowhere. And these climbers were all very vulnerable because they were up on the southeast ridge, the riskiest part of the entire climb. And they were hit with what we call a whiteout, meaning that the snow starts blasting and it stirs up the ice and the snow, and you get a situation where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Everything is white. You completely lose your orientation. You can't see where you are. You can't see where you're going. And it's cold, and it's the last place you, you want to be is up on the mountain when that kind of storm hits. We were having a bad enough time where we were. We were 24,000 feet in our tents. We would listen to what was happening up above, and uh, Rob, Rob said he was at the summit with Doug Hansen, who was one of his climbers. The year before, Doug had been with Rob and not summited. And Rob sort of didn't promise, but Rob said, come back next year and, you know, I'll do everything to get you to the summit. And Doug did come back the next year, but he was a far weaker climber than, than Rob. And he was exactly the case of someone who got to the summit, but didn't, didn't appreciate or whatever that that's only half, halfway mm. there. So Doug was absolutely spent on the summit. He was, he could hardly move after that. And to come off the summit, one of the first things you encounter is it's called the Hillary Step, mm-hmm. which is a rock face, which you have to climb down to get off the summit and to get back onto the Southeast Ridge. You know, if you're climbing in New Hampshire, you can do it. It's not that hard to climb. But when you're at 26,000 feet and you're already exhausted and there's a storm and you're wearing, you're wearing the ice boots rather than climbing shoes it becomes an extremely difficult climb. And Doug couldn't do it. He couldn't get down. He couldn't make that climb. He was too exhausted. He ran out of oxygen. So he was up there with Rob out of oxygen above the Hillary step. And we had no idea pretty much what was happening with the other climbers because they were scattered all over the mountain in the storm. They were trying to make their way back to camp four, which is the one camp above us, the last camp before the summit. They were trying to get back to the safe, relative safety of camp four. But Rob was sort of stuck with Doug above the Hillary step. 
Rob is a superb climber. I, I knew him from climbing in Antarctica many years earlier, and I knew what a superb climber he was. He could have climbed down. He could have climbed down himself, but he felt like he needed to stay with Doug. And it became obvious what, what you know how dangerous the situation was. Some of the climbers made it back to Camp 4. A lot of them were unaccounted for because they were so exhausted that they would just fall into nearest tent, you know, not even their own tent at Camp 4. So the people who got back to Camp 4 couldn't even tell who was there and who wasn't there. Mm. Uh, we didn't know which climbers had made it back, which climbers hadn't. One of the climbers coming down had passed a body laying in the snow. And they looked over at that person who was Beck Weathers. And there's two of them there. And they said to each other, he's dead. And they kept on going to get themselves out. And meanwhile, Rob had a radio. He was up near the summit with Doug. And we were the closest team to them. And I was the closest doctor to them. So there was no thought about us continuing our climb. Right. You know, at that point, it was a, it was a given that we were going to do what we could to help these people. And in fact, what I always remember, and what still gives me chills when, when I think about it, is we were in two tents. And our two best climbers, Todd Burleson and Pete Athens, were each one in one tent. And the wind was howling so loud that even though the tents were only a couple of yards apart, you couldn't communicate even by shouting. It was just too much, too much wind. It was like a freight train going by. So Todd and Pete had, even though they were only a couple of yards apart, had to communicate by radio. Oh my gosh. So they called each other on the radio. And the first words they said to each other were, how quick can you get ready? Which mm. actually it still gives me chills when I think about that. There was no question in their mind that they were going to try and pull off a rescue. They, they didn't even say, you know, do you think we can do this? Do you want to try? It was like a given for these two guys. They were going to try to pull a rescue. That wasn't even an issue. They just started saying, how quick can you get ready? And they got ready as quickly as they could. And they went up into the storm to try to see, you know, what they could do to rescue some of these people. But before they left, they got on the radio and passed a message to Rob. And I expected that message to be, you know, hang on, Rob, we're coming, something to that effect. But in fact, what they said to Rob was that he should leave Doug. He said, come down by yourself. There's no chance if you stay up there with Doug, come down and save yourself. That was the message they gave to Rob. And Rob replied, we're both listening. Oh, my gosh. That <sighs> still gets to me right, right here. Yeah. So they went up into that maelstrom of a storm. To, to see what they could do. They got to camp four and they encountered the climbers who had made it back down to camp four, including like John Krakauer, who later wrote the book about it. So it was, it was really chaotic up there. Todd and Pete did what they could. They, they tried to, you know, bring climbers into the tent, tried to warm up who they could. But the word was that Beck was dead. Rob was stuck up there with Doug and some, there was some Sherpas up at, up at camp four also. And they, they said they would try to get to Rob with some other oxygen and some supplies. Mm -hmm. So they started up the mountain, up the, up the treacherous Southeast Ridge in the storm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They were really risking their lives to try to get to him. And they got as far as they could, but the wind beat them back. They just couldn't get to Rob. And then they radioed to Rob and said that they're not coming, that they, they can't make it. And Rob knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. that he knew what that what what was going to happen now was that you know he was not going to make it down and then Rob's base camp someone there got the idea that maybe if he could get in contact with his wife Jan who was home in New Zealand pregnant that maybe she could talk to him and sort of you know give him the strength to actually make it make it down himself because it became apparent at that point that Doug was no mm -hmm. longer alive so they managed to do that. They managed to establish radio contact through a phone so that Rob actually talked to his wife. And they had a conversation and she tried to sort of motivate him. And what happened was they, they wound up picking a name for their baby. Oh. And, and then Rob just signed off and said he needs to rest. And that was the last we ever heard from Rob. <sighs>
we had heard that one of the climbers came back and said Beck Weathers died. And they went so far as to notify his family that Beck oh my had died gosh. on the moon. And then Todd and Pete were up at Camp 4, still you know, ministering to whoever had made it back there. And I was radioing advice to them from Camp 3. There was no way I could go up to Camp 4. I was the weakest climber in the group, and I would have been a casualty. But you know, you don't need to be a doctor at Camp 4. In that kind of situation, yeah. Todd and Pete were very experienced climbers. They knew first aid. They knew they couldn't. I couldn't do anything more than they were doing. But then Todd chanced to look out the tent door, and he saw somebody staggering around outside the tent. And he thought it was a climber who had gone out to urinate and was having difficulty. So he went out to help him. And to his total amazement, it was Beck Weathers. Beck Weathers had been left for dead, but here he was standing up and trying to get into, into camp. So Todd got him, brought him in and warmed him up as best as he could up there. And I remember he radioed down to me. He said, Ken, you're not going to believe this. Beck is alive, but I don't know for how long. So they brought him into the tent and they did what they could to warm him up. And also they found Makalu Gao, the Chinese climber, was also collapsed in the snow. He wasn't pronounced dead. They saw he was still alive and he was brought into Camp 4 as well. So at that point, we had two critically ill climbers, Beck Weathers and Makalu Gao, at 26,000 feet in freezing temperatures and with virtually essentially no supplies at all to help them out other than to try to warm them up. And the storm just raged on. It was a, like a two-day storm. Oh, my gosh. It, it just raged on and on. And when the storm finally cleared enough for people to actually climb, we did a kind of a triage. There was, you know, injured climbers up there with frostbite and hypothermia, meaning low body temperature, who needed to get down. But we had to make decisions as to who can come down and who can't, because if they stay up there, they might just die from exposure. Mm -hmm. If they come down, they might die on the way down if mm -hmm. they're not in condition to climb down. So we did a kind of a triage and we agreed everybody should go down except Beck and Makalu, because they were just too critical. There's no way they could climb down. So the other climbers came down past me at Camp 3. And at Camp 3, the only supplies I had was I had two plastic bags. One had steroids in it. One had painkillers. And they were on preloaded syringes, ready to go. But they were frozen. And I had no stove or anything to heat them up with. So I stuck them inside my down jacket under my arm and was able to thaw them out to get them to be liquid so that I could inject them. And as the climbers came by, depending on the shape they were in, I would decide if they could keep on going down by themselves or if they needed an injection, primarily of the steroid, because when you're up at 26,000 feet, you're very vulnerable to a condition where your brain swells. Mm. It's called cerebral edema. Your brain swells at that height. And when, once your brain swells, it's encased in a skull. So right. it's under tremendous pressure. And the pressure causes you to lose your ability to think and to coordinate. And at 26,000 feet, that's deadly. So as the climbers are coming back down, if you give them a shot of steroid, they immediately, almost immediately will clear up and they can think clearer and they can be coordinated again. And it lasts a few hours, which would be enough time for them to go down lower to camp two, which mm -hmm. would be a much safer location. So I gave shots to whoever needed it, or I thought needed it. It's such a precarious place, Camp 3, that to give the shot, I had to do it just right through the clothes. There was no such thing mm -hmm. as rolling up your sleeve or anything like that. We just injected it right right through the clothing or anything like that, anything else, and sent them back down. Meanwhile, Makalu Gao and Beck Weathers were in such bad shape that we decided that the risk of them dying on the descent was greater than the risk of them dying spending another night up in those conditions at 26,000 feet. But if they survived the night, we'd try to bring them down in the morning. So Todd and Pete stayed with them and tried to hydrate them, give them fluids and sort of bring them around, warm them up a little bit. And in the morning, they were in somewhat better shape. And we decided that they could come down. There was nothing I could do for them at Camp 3 with my two little bags of syringes. So I down climbed also down to Camp 2. You know, when you prepare for these expeditions, you have a lot of medical supplies, but you can't bring them up the mm -hmm. mountain very easily because everything is weight and bulk and Every trip through the mountain is dangerous, and you have to think of what supplies you can use at various heights and you know, what you might need and what, what you can use. Because Camp 2 is a much flatter spot. It's 21,000 feet. It's still quite high, but it's a lot lower than where we were. 
And at 21,000 feet, it's a lot flatter and I could treat people there. So I had, I radioed for supplies to be brought up to me to 21,000 feet while I climbed down to 21,000 feet to meet my supplies and to wait for the arrival of Beck and Makalu. Todd and Pete were bringing them down. And then Dave Brashears from the IMAX team, along with Ed Viesters, took the relay. Ed Viesters was one of the actors, so to speak, in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the IMAX film, but a superb, superb climber. And the two of them took the relay from Todd and Pete, and they brought Beck and Makalu to me at Camp 2, where I had set up my supplies to take care of them. But then I had more decisions to make because you would think at 21,000 feet, I had all the supplies that I needed for the moment, but I had to decide whether or not I wanted to treat their frostbite, which is not a clear-cut decision. You treat the frostbite by putting their hands and feet in warm water to thaw them out. But once you thaw out a body part, you have to be sure it stays thawed because Mm. if you thaw it out and it refreezes, the damage is double. It's twice as bad as leaving them frozen. So the temptation to thaw them out has to be weighed against the the, uh, idea that you must keep them thawed out once you do thaw them out. And we're still at 21,000 feet. But I had fuel there. We certainly had enough ice to melt for water. And I felt like I could do that. We warmed them up and got them out of any hypothermia and defrosted their body parts. But then the next problem, the next decision I was faced with was the wind was extremely high, even though it it wasn't snowing. There was a very, very strong wind blowing through the camp. And 21,000 feet, the air is still very thin. We were hoping that a helicopter could come in and pull off a rescue and get these guys off the mountain. But 21,000 feet is too high for the helicopter that was available because there's not enough air for the blades to keep the helicopter aloft. But the pilot was willing to risk it. The envelope for his helicopter, the the ceiling was 18,000 feet. In other words, the helicopter was not rated to fly above 18,000 feet. But the pilot was willing to risk coming in at 21,000 feet to try to pull off a rescue. But he couldn't do it because of the wind. The wind had been going for days, and I didn't know how many more days it was going to go for. But I had another decision to make because, you know, climbers are just incredibly brave people. They have tremendous integrity. And I knew they would do whatever I thought ought to be done, you know, without question. So my choice was either to wait out the storm, not knowing how long it's going to last, with two critically ill people in front of me, or to call for an over-the-ice evacuation, which would mean they'd have to load these two guys up and bring them down through the ice fall, which is the most critical, difficult part of the climb. It's hard enough to climb there by your own. To bring down uh, a more or less helpless climber through there is extremely risky. It's risky not just to the people you're bringing down, but it's very risky to the climbers. So I'd be asking these climbers to risk their lives to bring down these two critically ill people. And I knew they would say yes immediately. They wouldn't question my decision, but I wouldn't be the one risking my life. You know, these guys would be risking their lives. So I opted for the over the ice evacuation because I felt like these guys are going to die if they stay up here. They belong in an intensive care unit. And I couldn't just watch them, you know, deteriorate at 21,000 feet. Hmm. So I, I called for the over ice evacuation. They loaded the two climbers up for the trip down. At this point, they were in better shape, not in great shape, but they were in better shape and they could be put on ladders that we had to use as sleds to sort of bring them down the mountain. And we started down the mountain and I was thinking, I was so engrossed in my thoughts as to how I'm going to take care of these people down at base camp if we get there, that I didn't realize that the wind had quieted down. And all of a sudden I was startled by a noise. You know, when you're on Everest, at least at that time, there's no power equipment, there's no anything. You don't hear a loud noise for three months. And all of a sudden I heard this loud machine noise. It took me a second to realize that that loud machine noise was a helicopter. Oh my gosh. The wind had died down and the pilot was going to risk his life to come in in this lull in the wind at 21,000 feet, 3,000 feet above the rating of his helicopter to try to pick up these climbers. And the air was so thin that he was having trouble staying aloft. So what he was doing was he was flying very close to the ice and depending on what's called prop wash, which means that the helicopter blades force air down. That's how the helicopter stays aloft. And if you fly close to the ice, there's a rebound effect and the air that you push down bounces back up. So you get like double air. Mm -hmm. 
And he was using this double air to maintain enough lift to keep his helicopter in the air. But the problem was you can't see crevasses from the air. And the pilot, every time he flew over a crevasse, he lost that rebound because the air would just go down into the crevasse. So when he flew over a crevasse, we could see the helicopter bounce down off the ice. He was skidding along on the ice every time he came over a, a crevasse. So he was trying to make his way to us, but he really couldn't see the crevasses. He couldn't find a route to get to us. So one of our climbers, Ed Vistras, got what I consider a brilliant idea. One of the other climbers was carrying pink Kool-Aid. So he took the Kool-Aid and he laid out a trail with the pink Kool-Aid that avoided the crevasses so that the helicopter pilot could see the Kool-Aid from the air and could follow that trail, avoiding the crevasses. Oh my gosh. And it worked. The pilot came down. He didn't actually land because he was afraid if he actually touched the ice, his skids would freeze in the ice and he would be unable to, to take off again, which would be fatal for him because even if he didn't right. die in a helicopter crash, he was suddenly way above an altitude that he was acclimatized to. And if you don't acclimatize to altitude, your lungs give out. So uh, he was really risking his life in several ways, but he hovered just like a foot or so above the ice. And we brought the two climbers to him. And Beck, to his credit, said, take Makalu first, because Beck was in better shape than Makalu was, because the, the pilot could only take one climber at a time. At that altitude, he didn't want any more weight. And in fact, he was so cognizant of the weight problem that we loaded Makalu into the helicopter and I was carrying a little purse of Makalu's personal effects. And after we loaded Makalu into the helicopter, I tossed that purse onto Makalu's stomach and the, the pilot tossed it right back out. He didn't even want to take that much extra weight. He was so afraid of the weight limit. So what he did was he took Makalu, brought him down to 17,000 feet and unloaded him and then came back up and picked up Beck. And then went back down to 17,000 feet and loaded both of them. Because 17,000 feet is within his safe range. So then he took both of them and took off to Kathmandu with them. Oh, my gosh. And then suddenly, there we were. There we were at camp, just below camp two. And it was quiet. And it was over. You know, so all of a sudden, my patients were gone. The whole thing was, like, instantly over. It was so strange, all of a sudden. So... Gosh, thank you so much for sharing that story. I can't, it's so unfathomable. I just, so I want to, I want to just ask you, I mean, I know, I, I know there's no way for you to get into the head of Rob Hall in that moment, but just, just a couple of questions in terms of kind of his decision-making and balancing out the decisions he was making. Cause there, there's two things that I, I, I find, I guess, perplexing. Yeah. So what people don't know is the way that Beck Weathers ends up in the situation that he's in. Yeah. Is that, as, as I recall, he had had surgery that made it so that when he was at that high altitude, his eyes basically failed. Yeah, that's correct. He had what's called a radial keratotomy, which at, that operation is no longer done, but it's to avoid the need to wear glasses. The surgeon makes cuts in the cornea, which changes the shape of the cornea slightly and it corrects your vision. The operation works, but it causes scars on the cornea. And when you go to altitude, the cornea swells in everybody. That's a normal body response. And it's not a problem because it swells uniformly. And vision has to go through the cornea. So as long as it's swelling uniformly, you don't even notice any problem with it. But if it swells irregularly, then you start to get distorted vision. And because of the scar tissue, Beck was getting very distorted vision to the point where he couldn't see. So he turned around partway up the mountain, he realized this was not going to work for him. And he stopped and he turned around. But because of his distorted vision and because of the whiteout, he couldn't see where he was going. So he got completely lost up there. And it was freezing cold. He realized that he was in, in bad shape. So his hands were freezing. What he tried to do was he tried to take his glove. He did take his glove off and he tried to put his hand inside his jacket to warm it up. But between the time he took the glove off and before he could get his hand in his jacket, he collapsed. And he was just laying in the snow, unable to move and freezing to death. And he was, he was just laying there. And that's when the two climbers came by and looked at him and said, he's dead. You know, you learn in medical school, if you have hypothermia to that degree, meaning low body temperature, you're going to die unless you get an outside 
source of heat. You mm -hmm. need outside heat to bring you back up. Your body is incapable of warming yourself at that temperature. So somehow Beck, he didn't read the chapter, you know, <laughs> and he, he got up, Beck stood up. And not only that, he still couldn't see. And there was still a whiteout and a storm was going, but he was able to reason well enough in that condition to think that when he was climbing, the wind was at his back. So now if he has any chance of getting back to the tents, he's got to face into the wind. So here's a guy exhausted, you know, hypothermic and thinking clear enough to say, I am going to take the worst route possible, meaning the hardest route right into the wind, because that's my only chance of survival. And he faced right into the wind and moved forward and made some progress and then saw what he thought were blue rocks. So he went up to the blue rocks, went toward the blue rocks and the blue rocks were in fact the tents of camp four. And as he got close, that's when Todd looked out the tent and saw him staggering around and came oh my out. Gosh. Yeah. So, so here, here's the question that I have in terms of Rob Hall's decision-making. So he knew that Beck couldn't get up the, to the summit and basically it said, wait here and I'll come back and get right. you on the way down right. since you can't right. see. Right. And then when, you know, obviously he feels this obligation to Doug Hansen, but it's my understanding, I, I, I think from having actually spoken to you before, that after Rob Hall summited at 2 p.m., when it became clear that it was it was very late and Doug Hansen, you know, being a, a weaker climber, you know, was going to arrive quite late to the summit. If Rob Hall had come down from the summit, w would he not have met Doug Hansen along the way? Yes. Yes, he would have. Yes. So- so I'm just curious, because obviously, you know, in the calm of the moment from the outside, not being in that situation. So saying this, trying to say this with, with very little judgment here, just because I recognize how different my perspective on it is with the benefit of hindsight. You know, it feels like he gets to the summit late. Doug Hansen isn't there. He comes back down, meets Doug Hansen along the way, says, not this year, sorry. It's very late. And then goes back and, and tries to get Beck Weathers. Now, the, the storm may have prevented that, but he, that would have been maybe the attempt that he would have made. So I, I'm just curious, just kind of as a, as a final thought, how much do you think the attempt the year before that had failed and his, you know, somewhat convincing Doug Hansen to come back and try again the next year negatively affected his, his ability to think through that situation on the summit? Yeah. Uh, you know, I to me at that time, Rob Hall was the greatest climber in the world. I, I really thought he was, you know, I, I still think at the time he probably was, you know, I knew him from climbing in Antarctica. I knew him for a long time and we'd worked together for years on, on Everest. And I don't feel like I, I have anywhere near the stature to criticize Rob Hall. It's a very hard thing to do, but I think at that point, I think Rob, I think he got carried away. I think he got carried away by the idea of satisfying Doug Hansen. You know, he'd more or less promised, he, you can't promise the summit, but he promised, he, he convinced Doug to come back. And, you know, with the idea that he could really bring him to the summit this time. And I think it got the better of him. I think he lost his clear judgment at that point. He actually should have turned the whole group around, you know, right. they, were all, they were all too slow. They should have all turned around, you know, but I think Rob felt like he's going to push it this time because he, he wants to have these people succeed, you know, and I think maybe his, his own judgment was clouded at that time. It's, it's hard to even say that because he was such a superb climber and so smart and so, you know, so mountain wise, but maybe he also felt competition, you know, from the other team, you know, Scott Fisher's team was on there too. And even though they, you know, they might climb together, they're still in a sense competitors. They're looking to, you know, bring other people up the mountain. There's a lot of other factors involved. And I think just at that, at that time, he made the wrong decision. You know, he's- Yeah. I mean, I, th I think there's such a, it's such a good lesson in there. I mean, as you say, he was a really good decision maker. Yeah. And he was a great expert climber. And, and I think that's really a, an important lesson for all of us to hear that, expertise doesn't necessarily protect you. That no, it doesn't. These, yeah. these biases yeah. and, and sort of what happens when we have this goal in mind and the yeah. way that our goals can, 
cause us to become myopic to being being able to see the time horizon you know that that the goal is to actually get down the mountain for example right that we have other things that you know families to go back to and you know wanting to come back another year to be able to go up yeah. the mountain again and all of these things that get deprivileged that get put in the shadows by this one goal right. of the summit yeah. that, that's happening to all of us every day for those of us who who aren't nearly the decision makers or the experts yeah. that Rob Hall yeah. was yeah yeah so I, I think there's so many lessons to be taken off that mountain. It, it's really, he can't see the forest for the trees. No, you know, they, exactly. That, that, it's just that myopia. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, and, and by the way, and the, the myopia that even causes him to not, you know, to, to sort of privilege the, the goal, you know, around Doug Hansen and the promise he's made to Doug Hansen over Beck Weathers. It's what's right in front of him that he sees. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he, that's right. Even Beck Weathers was, you know, forsaken in that moment. Yeah, you know, and and no, again, no criticism. I mean, these are these these are really difficult decisions. And I think the lesson is that again, if Rob Hall can succumb to those types of decision errors, you know, we all we all ought to be thinking about this much more for ourselves. Well, that's a very good point. Anybody's vulnerable to that. Then if Rob Hall could make the wrong decision. Yeah. Yeah. So we've we, this has been so amazing, and we've taken yeah. up so much of your time. I would I would love I would love to just ask you just a couple of follow up questions. What decision making tool would you want to pass down to the next generation of decision makers? I'd like to have people look at their lives this way. Imagine you're brought to a planet and you're told that with luck, you'll have maybe 80 or 90 years to be on this planet. How would you want to spend your time on that planet? What goals would you have for yourself on that adventure for those 80 or 90 years? Wouldn't you want to see and experience as much of it as you could, as much of your life as you could, and hopefully leave the planet a better place than when you arrived? Isn't that really what you would want to do. And in fact, isn't that the situation you're in? You know, we're, we're on this planet for a, a finite amount of time. Mm. And I think it's important that you realize that the way you spend those time, your time there is very much a choice. You know, you're making choices all the time. When you say to somebody, I can't do that, like, I, I can't come tonight for dinner or something like that. What you're really saying is I won't come. Mm-hmm. You know, you could come, you could come, but you're saying you won't come and you might have a very good reason for not coming. You know, maybe, you know, maybe it's, it's your kid's birthday or something, or, you know, maybe you're 10,000 miles away. I mean, you could have a real reason for not coming, but for the most part, you're making a decision not to come, you know, like you can't fly, you can't run 60 miles an hour, but most things, when you say you can't, you really mean you won't. So you have to realize that you're making a, a choice to do these things. Most of your decisions, most of your choices are, are under your control. Like I always like to say everyone should have their own Everest. And it doesn't have to be a mountain. Right. It, it can be any goal that you feel is impossible or almost impossible, but something that you think is valuable. And if you go for it, you will find in yourself, you have qualities that you never knew you had. You realize what you have in you that you can that you can make use of in, in, in many other ways, even if you don't reach that Everest of whatever you decided it, it ought to be. That's, uh, that's amazing advice, and I, I love you know I love the idea of everybody should figure out what their Everest is, and it doesn't need to be a mountain. It, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So for listeners who want to go online or learn more about you or follow you on social media. Where where should we send them? Well, <laughs> well, I have two books that they could read. A lot of my philosophy is in those books. And I don't have like a website, but I'm on Wikipedia. From, from people <laughs> tell me they see me there. And they, they obviously can go to the TED site to be able to you see know, your- the TED site for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple of TED talks and I have a lot of TV shows and stuff you can look up. You know, I've been on TV quite a bit. I've done a lot, a lot of radio stuff, NPR interviews. You know, I try to- Put out my philosophy for what it's worth to every time I get a chance to talk to people in large groups. I know we spent a lot of time, but we touched on so little of, of your experiences and what you have to say in your philosophy, you know, just through time limitations. So I hope that people will go to those show notes and the links that are there to explore to explore you more because everybody should be learning from Ken Kamler. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak with you. I really enjoyed it myself. At the Alliance for Decision Education, our mission is to improve lives by empowering students with essential decision skills. We're building a national movement to ensure decision education is part of every student's learning experience. Through this podcast, we're raising awareness about the movement, but we need your help. Please share, tweet, and sign the pledge on our website, allianceforddecisioneducation.org. If there's someone you think would be great for us to interview for a future episode, or if you have a question about decision-making that you'd like us to explore on the podcast, email us at connect at allianceforddecisioneducation.org. For listeners interested in following up on any of the materials mentioned today, check out the show notes on the Alliance site, where you'll also find a transcript of today's conversation. Ratings on Apple Podcasts are always greatly appreciated. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you. And I hope you join us again soon.